Good morning, everyone. It's a pleasure to be with you this morning. Uh, this is my second time that I've gotten to be with you. I was able to be here last spring, um, so it's really great to be back with my wife, Molly, sitting up there in the front. And today we are going to be looking at uh, the story of the prophet Jonah. Specifically, we're going to be looking at Jonah chapter 2, which if you're looking in your pew Bibles, that's going to be on page 1,437, or you could follow along on the screen behind me or in your bulletin. So I'm going to read our passage for us, uh, then I'm going to pray, and we can get started. So starting in verse 1 of Jonah chapter 2. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped about my head at the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. When my life was fanning away, I remembered the Lord. And my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your Son. We thank you for your mercy. Your mercy all immense my free, immense and free, which has found us out. We thank you for the truths that we just sang. And I pray, Lord, that you would help me to proclaim those in this passage. So, Lord, I do pray that by your Spirit you would open our eyes that we might behold wonderful things out of your word. All these things I ask in Jesus' name. Amen. I absolutely have to have it, whatever it takes. This is what I imagine 70-year-old me was thinking to himself the moment that he laid his eyes on a candy-red bow and arrow from Walmart in rural North Carolina. The moment I saw it, this bow and arrow became everything for me. It was the object of my desire. And I asked my mom if I could have this bow and arrow, you know, because it's a good idea to give a seven-year-old a bow and arrow, to which she gave a pretty typical response, and she said, ask your dad and see what he says. So the next day, I came back to my mom, and I told her that dad had said I could have the bow and arrow. So we went to Walmart, walked in, grabbed the bow and arrow. We paid for it, of course. We didn't steal it. And the next thing I know, I'm walking out of Walmart holding my new prize possession. I am the owner of this candy red bow and arrow. And that afternoon was seven-year-old joy. I was shooting at targets. I felt like I was Robin Hood. I was in a pure state of elation. But there was one problem with my joy. You see, I hadn't actually talked to my dad and asked him if I could have the bow and arrow. And this was before the time of text messages and phones like cell phones, so I couldn't, my mom couldn't coordinate with my dad to ask if I had actually done it. So I had devised this plan that I was going to tell my mom that dad said I could have the bow and arrow, and I was going to get it, and I was going to deal with the problems later. You see, I had a suspicion that my dad would say no. So in a sneaky move of seven-year-old rebellion, I decided to tell mom that dad had given me the go-ahead, when in fact he hadn't. 
And as you can imagine, all of my joy came to a crashing halt whenever Dad came home from work. And then he and Mom put their heads together, and they unraveled my seven-year-old plan. And I vividly remember sitting there, after I had been found out, sitting there in my room, knowing for a fact that I had been caught. There was absolutely nowhere that I could hide. There was no way of getting around it. I had tried to fool my parents, and I had failed. All I could do is sit there and wait while my stomach was in knots. You see, in this moment, I was completely at the mercy of my parents. How were they going to respond? And today we're going to be looking at the book of Jonah, chapter 2, where the prophet Jonah finds himself in a similar spot to seven-year-old me, at the mercy of my parents. He finds himself at the bottom of the ocean, completely at the mercy of God, wondering, how is God going to respond to me? You see, the book of Jonah is really, it's a tale of two hearts. The first heart is the heart of the Lord, which is compassionate, and it longs for people to be brought in. But then there's the heart of Jonah, who hears a word from the Lord, and he runs in the opposite direction. So throughout the story, we hear this contrast of the heart of the Lord and the heart of Jonah. And up to this point in the story, Jonah has heard a word from the Lord, and he has decided to run as far as he possibly can in the opposite direction. But the story tells us, and if you're familiar with the story, you know that he doesn't actually get very far. The Lord sends a storm to stop Jonah in his tracks. And at this point in the story, Jonah, rather than acknowledging his rebellion and crying out to the Lord, in a last act of defiance, he has decided that he is going to tell these sailors to throw him over the edge of the boat, and he's going to sink down to the bottom. He has continually chosen to rebel against God's heart. And all that he has left is to sink to the bottom of the sea and to see how God is going to respond. He's completely at the mercy of God. Now, what does this story of an 8th century prophet have to do with us? If you're anything like me, you can't remember the last time that you told the pagan sailors that you were sailing with to throw you over the side of a ship. It's not something that we do very often. What does a rebellious prophet have to do with a more civilized people? You might be thinking, sure, maybe I could relate to this rebellion in my younger days. There might have been a part part of my life where I was rebellious. But now I've gotten that out of my system. And at the worst, I'm an otherwise perfect person who has flaws. That tends to be how we think about ourselves. But this is actually a different story than what the Bible tells about us. The Bible says that we are sinners. The Bible insists that sin is us saying to God, you don't know what is best for me. It's a nonsensical act because, of course, God knows what is best for us. Sin is an act of defiance against God's will. Our problem isn't character flaws. It's outright rebellion. The author of C.S. Lewis captures this well when he says this. He says, Fallen man is not simply an imperfect creature who needs improvement. He is a rebel who must lay down his arms. So as we look at this story of the rebellious prophet today, We're not going to be looking as people from the outside, wondering what God's going to do with this rebellion, this rebellious prophet. We're going to be looking as fellow rebels. So the question we're going to ask as we look at this passage is how does God respond to our rebellion? How does he respond to us when our rebellion is exposed for what it is? All right, so we're going to get started looking in verse 1. If you look there with me, it says this. It says, from inside the fish, Jonah prayed to the Lord his God. All right, so first off, we got a pretty shocking thing that happened. Jonah is inside a fish. That doesn't happen very often. But actually, that's not the most shocking thing here. The most shocking thing is that Jonah is praying. 
Because up to this point in the story of Jonah, Jonah has been making a concerted effort to run in the opposite direction of the Lord. And here we see him crying out to the Lord. And if you're reading this, the question you're asking is, what in the world could have happened to make Jonah pray? Jonah's rebellion was so deep that he would rather be pitched over the side of a boat than to turn from his rebellion. And yet he prays. So a little hint to what has happened here comes in verse 2. It says this. It says, I called to the Lord from deep in the realm of the dead. I called for help. Or maybe your translation says in the belly of Sheol. Uh, And Sheol is a term that the Hebrews use to refer to the land of the dead. Um, And if you're trying to think about it, it really all it means is that it's a place where God isn't. So Jonah feels like he is in a place where God isn't. And more than that, what's shocking is that he sees that it's the Lord who has brought him there. He says this. He says, you hurled me into the depths. All your waves and your breakers swept over me, referring to the Lord. The Lord is the one who hurled him to the depths. It is the Lord's breakers that go over him. So he's in a deadly place. He feels like he is far from the Lord, but he also communicates that it's the Lord who has brought him there. What are we to do with this? How could a good God put his servant in this place? So my senior year of college, uh, I took a class that was called Run Conditioning that I had to pass in order to graduate. And you might be wondering why I decided to take a class on running uh, when I could have taken a class that was on walking. The walking class would have been a whole lot easier, but then there was my pride that wouldn't allow me to tell my friends I was taking a class called Fitness Walking. So Run Conditioning it was. And in order to pass this class, I was going to have to run a 5K, which is 3.1 miles, in less than 28 minutes. Um, Which might not sound like that much if you're a runner here, but uh, rest assured, I was not a runner. So I signed up for this class, and to be honest, I wasn't really that worried about it. I knew it was going to be difficult, but I wasn't sure how difficult. And all of that changed on the first day of class, when we showed up and we decided to do a thing called circuits. And if you're into fitness, you, you might know what circuits is. For those of you who aren't, it's, it's basically uh, you know, a set period of time, 30 minutes or an hour, where you're doing different workouts. And the goal of it is to keep your heart rate elevated so that you can get you know, in the cardio zone there. And we did these circuits for an hour this first day of class. And I'm out of shape. I've never run more than a mile in my life at this point. And so I get through this hour of running circuits. It was, it was really brutal. And then at the end of class, it's a class of 40 people at a big public university. I don't know any of these people. And we're sitting down on the floor of the gym. And the moment I sit down, I knew something was wrong. I broke into a cold sweat, and the gym started spinning. And it became clear to me, it's like, oh my goodness, I'm going to be sick. We're on the opposite side of the gym right now from a trash can that's way over here, which you know you might need to get near to if you feel like you're going to be sick in a gym. So I decided to discreetly get up and then go around the corner to the trash can. So I get up, go around the corner to the trash can, and then, sure enough, I I become sick. And I thought that I had kind of gotten away with it because I was around the corner, I was away from the majority of my class. But then unbeknownst to me, my teacher had actually stopped the class of all 40 people and decided to come around the corner behind me as I am getting sick. So I'm holding a trash can, feeling very sick, I am, I'm vomiting like the, uh, like the fish does at the end of this story. And my teacher comes behind me asking me, why are you sick? Did you, did you eat something that didn't agree with you? Did, like, what, what's wrong? Which, side note, is not something to ask someone when they're throwing up. <laughs> but at this moment, I, it, it just became utterly clear to me. This was a low. 
And from this low, I was seeing new things about myself. You see, it took me being brought to the lowest possible place in order to see reality. And that reality for me was that I was terribly out of shape, and I was going to have to start taking this very seriously if I had any hope of graduating. There, hugging the trash can while my teacher peppered me with questions, I was forced to take a sober look at what kind of shape I was in. And friends, in the same way, God bringing Jonah to this low was the only way that he was going to be able to see the shape that his heart was in. So how does God respond to our rebellion? He brings us low. The Lord brings us low. And I would be remiss if I didn't nuance this point just a little bit, um, because some of you might be hearing me say that if you're suffering in any way, it's because the Lord is bringing you low because of some individual sin that you have done. And I want to say that that's not what this passage is saying, so please don't hear me say that. I want to caution us against the thinking that any sort of suffering that we find ourselves in is because we're running from the Lord. Because actually in the New Testament, there was one who followed the heart of the Lord perfectly, namely Jesus, and he suffered greatly. And as his followers, we are promised that suffering is going to come. But our passage does speak to the reality that Jonah is brought to this place because he was running from the presence of the Lord. So what can we learn from this? Why do we need to see that God responds to our rebellion by bringing us low? And many of you know that it's not fun to be brought to rebellion. Even as I'm telling my story, it's a a little bit funny about me in gym class because the stakes weren't very high. But for many of you, the stakes are a lot higher than this. And being brought low is not something to laugh about. It's serious. But we need to see this because in bringing us low, it puts on display what it means to be in relationship with God. We see that God doesn't abandon us. In bringing Jonah to his low, the Lord is demonstrating his care to him. He's not abandoning him. He's not rubbing his nose in his failure. He is pursuing him. And the same is true for us. And in bringing Jonah to his literal rock bottom, he wasn't putting him in danger. He was protecting him from the most dangerous thing, his own heart. The most dangerous thing that could have happened to Jonah is for God to let him have his way and to run away. But the Lord loves him too much. And friends, if you're in Christ, the Lord loves you too much to allow you to do that. Our rebellious hearts are our greatest danger. But our rebellious hearts cannot stand in the way of the Lord. So what this means is that if you're a Christian, the love of God will hunt you down. There's no way that you can go. You can be running as far as you possibly want to, but the love of God is going to hunt you down. So if you're here today and you feel like you're being brought low, take heart. The Lord is treating you like a child. He disciplines the one whom he loves. Though you may feel raw, broken, and bruised, you're exactly where God wants you. So we've seen that the Lord responds to our rebellion by bringing us low. But is that all that we can say? Thankfully, it's not. Look with me to verse 6 in the second half here. We see a little bit of a change of tone from Jonah. He says this. He says, You brought me up from the pit, O Lord my God. You brought my life up from the pit. Whereas we've seen that the Lord brought Jonah low in the first part, we see him actually raising him up in the second part. But not only does the Lord save Jonah physically by providing a fish to swallow him and bring him back up, he actually begins to change his heart. And we can see this in verses 8 and 9. These are kind of like the uh, Jonah summing up what has happened in this experience. 
And we can see at least three ways that the Lord has changed him in this process. So the first one is in verse 8. In verse 8, we see that Jonah has grown in compassion. It says this. It says, those who cling to worthless idols forfeit the grace that could be theirs. So at the beginning of the story, Jonah is running as far as he can from Nineveh. It says that he got on a ship going towards Tarshish. And Tarshish is about as far west as you could possibly conceive of going. And Nineveh is far east. So Jonah's running as far as he can in the opposite direction because he doesn't want to go there and offer God's word to them. And yet here we, we see him say that the grace of God could be theirs if only they would forsake their idols. So we see that in this experience, in the Lord bringing him low and raising him back up, Jonah is beginning to view Nineveh as within the scope of the grace of God. So he's learned compassion. But second, we see that he has learned, he has a renewed sense of mission. If you would look with me to verse 9. But I, with the song of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will make good. So in essence, Jonah, the same one who ran in the opposite direction from the Lord, is saying here, Lord, you went. I'm going to go about your business. I'm going to do what you want me to do. Jonah has moved from a rebellious deserter of God to an active participant in his mission. So he's learned he has a renewed sense of mission. And finally, he has moved to humility. At the end of verse 9, we have this proclamation that, that a lot of biblical theologians say this is the best summary of biblical doctrine that we find in the Old Testament. It says, salvation comes from the Lord. Or maybe in your translation it says, salvation belongs to the Lord. And this is a stark contrast from Jonah, who would rather be thrown in the ocean because he doesn't want to admit that salvation belongs to the Lord. Here he is rejoicing in the very thing that he was running from. His heart has moved from cold resignation to humble recognition. That God is the only one who is fit to decide who is saved. In a lot of ways, this is the most shocking thing in the passage. The most shocking thing isn't that Jonah is swallowed by a fish. That is shocking. What is more shocking is the fact that the Lord can move someone from cold resignation, from running as far as they could the opposite direction, into being an active participant in the mission of God, friends. And if you're a Christian, that is true for you. There's nothing about you that he cannot change. When Jonah cried out to the Lord from the bottom of the ocean, he was hoping for God to save his life. But what he actually got was a changed life. And we can see this demonstrated in a story that Jesus told in the New Testament. Uh, It's a story of a man with two sons, commonly referred to as the prodigal son. Um, But basically, the, the story goes that the younger son decided that he didn't want to be a part of his father's household anymore. He decided that he wanted to get his inheritance and go off and do his own thing. So he told his father this. And in the ancient world, if you had said this to your father, you were saying in no uncertain terms, I wish you were dead. In fact, all I want is the money that you could give me. And shockingly, this father decides that he is going to comply with his son's wishes, and he gives him the money. And then he goes off and does his own thing. He goes off into a far country, and he spends his money and loses it. And then eventually, he finds himself having to hire himself out to farmers, to feed the pigs. And there, is, as he's in the pigsty, he realizes where his rebellion against his father has gotten him. And he thinks to himself, surely it would be better for me to try to go back to my father and to be a hired servant in his house. That would be better than where I'm at now. 
So he resolves that he's going to turn around, he's going to walk back to his father's house. And as he's walking, you can imagine, he must be rehearsing what he's going to say, because he's got to say things perfectly to make sure that his father allows him to be a hired servant. But Jesus tells us this. He says that, but while the son was still a long way off, his father saw him. His father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. You see, before the son could even get his well-rehearsed speech out of his mouth, his father runs to him speaking words of grace. And not only does he allow him back into his house, he restores to him the status of sonship. He says, bring a robe and put it on him. Give him a ring. Kill the fatted calf. The son was hoping to be a hired servant in his father's house, but instead, he is a fully reinstated son. Whereas he was hoping for workers' wages and basic food, what he got was the fatted calf. See, the father looked upon his rebellious son, and he raised him back to the status of sonship. And this is what the Lord does with Jonah in our passage, and it's what he does with us. Not only does the Lord save us, but he changes us in the process. So how does God respond to our rebellion? We see that God raises us up to new life. And why do we need to see this? Why do we need to see this, that God raises us to new life? It's because it shows us what kind of God we have. We have a God who is a good father, who runs to us and speaks words of grace to us. God runs to you with love in his heart, and he knows your rebellious heart better than you do. He knows the ways that you have chosen to go your own way. He knows the sinful realities of your heart, but he loves you, and he desires to change you. We need to know this because many of us believe that our sin and our rebellion or our past failures are things that we have to make up for, right? We might think of a time in our life where we were particularly far from the Lord, and we see this time as a way to redeem that, as a way to make up for it. And I can understand why we might think that, but friends, that's, that's not the gospel. The gospel is that dead have been raised to life. Rebels have been made into active participants in the work of God. Rejoice in this fact that Christian life is not a do-over. It's not you making up for the ways that you have failed the Lord. It is a new, resurrected life lived in union with our Savior. It is a gift to be received. Your deepest need is not moral reform. It is resurrection. And in Jesus, you are given that. So ultimately, when we put these together, that God brings us low and raises us to new life, what do we have? In bringing us low and raising us to new life, we see that God overcomes our rebellion. That our rebellious hearts don't stand a chance against the overcoming love of God. Now, it would be tempting to end the story here and to tie a bow on it, but if you're familiar with the story of Jonah, you know it doesn't end so triumphantly. It doesn't end with Jonah saying salvation comes from the Lord. Actually, it ends with salvation going to Nineveh and Jonah not being happy about it. Even though Jonah was brought low and raised to new life, he continued to rebel against God's heart. And if we're honest, even though we have tasted and seen that the Lord is good, even though we have been given grace, we often struggle with rebelling against God's heart. So where does that leave us if we are like Jonah and we forget the grace that has been given to us? Thankfully, there's another one who is also like Jonah, though in a much different way. In the New Testament, Jesus actually compares himself to Jonah. He says in Matthew 12, 
For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. So like Jonah, Jesus went down into the depths for three days and he was raised to new life. But unlike Jonah, Jesus went there because of our rebellion, not his own. Jonah went to the depths to flee from the heart of God. Jesus went to the depths because he was sprinting after the heart of God. Jonah was guilty, but he didn't receive ultimate punishment. Jesus was innocent, but he receives ultimate punishment. Why? Friends, in Jesus, the Lord overcomes our rebellion because ultimately the Lord was overcome with his desire to have us. He looked down through the ages and he said, whatever it takes, I absolutely must have them. And if you are a Christian, this is the type of love that you have in God. This is the type of love that will melt our rebellious hearts. Because the Lord overcomes our rebellion, we must strive to follow after the heart of the Lord. Please pray with me. Our Father, we thank you that you do not um, bring us low uh, and leave us there. Um, Lord, you do let us taste um, difficulty in this life, but Lord, we can know that in Christ, um, with every death, there is resurrection. Lord, that you are a God who makes um, beautiful things out of dust. Lord, that you raise us to new life. I pray that you would help us to rejoice in that this week as we go about uh, our lives and our work. All these things I ask in Jesus' name. Amen.